Uh, do me a courtesy, turn in your Bible to the book of Psalms. We will be in chapter 23 of that portion of scripture. And while you're turning there, let me give you just a little bit of background about what we're jumping into. Uh, I've said this before, but the Bible is a really interesting book in that it is comprised of books. It is a book of books, and yet somehow, uh, in spite of having an awful lot of different authors from an awful lot of different places being written in three or four languages, depending on who you ask, over thousands of years, it tells this remarkably coherent and unified story. But it also, in addition to being a book made up of books, is a book made up of books that themselves are comprised of different genres. So that is a, a really long sentence. But here's, here's what I mean by that. You can look at the letters of Paul, uh, which we've spent some time in. The last, last series we did before 1 Kings was going through uh, 2 Corinthians. And, and Paul's doing a lot of formal sort of discussion and dialogue. Do this, don't do this. This is right, this is wrong. It's very propositional, it's very cut and dry, and I say cut and dry not because it's always easy to understand, but Paul is saying things very clearly. And so you've got letters, which I guess is one genre, but then you've got the Gospels. And the Gospels are these Greco-Roman biographies of the story of Jesus. And so you have something different from what Paul's doing. You've got history. Uh, But then even in the stories of Jesus, Jesus is telling parables, which are not the same thing as history. And so within biography, you also have parables. And if you go looking for, um, if you go looking for the, the home of the Good Samaritan, you won't find it because Jesus doesn't actually mean for you to think there was a particular event that took place. He's telling you a different sort of story. And then you go back to the Old Testament and it gets even more difficult because now you don't just have history uh, like Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus, because Leviticus isn't history, it's laws. It's an entirely different genre. And then you come to something like Proverbs, which is wisdom. It it is functionally these very short and pithy sayings that are not actually even meant to be universally true. And this is why you'll have two different Proverbs that say two different things. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. Do answer a fool according to his folly. Which one's true? Depends on the circumstance. And then you get to something like the Psalms, which is ultimately just a collection of songs. And in all of these different genres, all of these different sorts of literature, the Christian conviction has been that God has inspired and now speaks through these writings. Where scripture speaks, God speaks. It's why we read so much scripture in our service. That's because we believe that God speaks when his word is read. But it should say something to us, humanity made in the image of God, about ourselves and about God, that God doesn't just speak in one way. Like the fact that all of the Bible is not like the letters of Paul, but it includes history, parable, biography, poetry, songs. I think that says that that truth doesn't just come to us in one particular way. And to really grasp truth, it requires that we hear it in different ways. And so we come to the book of Psalms, which is a book of songs. And in so many ways, the church has lost something significant when it comes to the book of Psalms. Uh, Corey and the band did a great job of leading us tonight. Most of what we sang were Psalms. Uh, There was a couple songs in between that weren't, but that is not common. Most Christians don't sing the Psalms anymore, in large part because it hasn't been until recently that people have put it to modern music. Um, 
Very few Bible studies walk through the book of Psalms in large part because it's like 150 chapters and that's going to be like a 10 year Bible study if you actually want to go through it Psalm by Psalm. Somebody said, sounds good. Maybe, maybe we'll try it after, after the zillion other series that we're going through. And even fewer of us have actually memorized the Psalms. And this is probably the, the greater tragedy that we've maybe read them and we maybe know a line or two, but they haven't worked their way into our lives. They haven't shaped us. They haven't become a part of who we are. But that is very different from how this book functioned in the early church. Uh, There's some indication that early Christians, when they were selecting elders and bishops and deacons, they wouldn't even consider somebody unless they'd memorized all of the Psalms of David, which is a lot. I don't even have like three of them memorized. So I would not be hired for my job. Um, There's uh, indication that uh, Christians early on were reading through the Psalms almost on a monthly basis. When when you get into the later period of Christian history and you look at sort of the monasteries that arise in the Middle Ages, they would read the entire book of Psalms every week. They would sing it, they would pray it, they would memorize it. It found its way deeply into people. And for 2,000 years, Christians have found in this book words a voice to express their triumphs, their trials, their joys, and their pain. But I think the most important thing about the book of Psalms is that this is the book of the Bible that Jesus quotes more than any other part of the Old Testament, which would seem to indicate that Jesus spent a lot of his life in the Psalms, being shaped by them. It's why on the cross, uh, as he's dying, he can quote Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because his whole life has been formed by this book. And my hope is that maybe tonight is a step towards your life beginning to be formed by this text as well. We're in Psalm 23, which is a familiar portion of scripture. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, even if you have been showing up here on Thursdays and you're not sure what you think about uh, God or Christianity or Jesus or any of that, you've probably heard at least the opening line, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's really, really famous. It's on our wall plaques. It's on our greeting cards. And here's the temptation for me. Whenever I come to a passage that everybody knows, like John 3.16, the temptation for me is I need to figure out something new to say about this because everybody's gonna just get bored if I say the same old thing over and over and over again. And so I'm always, when we come to passages like this, trying to find some sort of like a fresh perspective that I can bring out so people will go, oh, that wasn't as boring as I thought it would be. But sometimes that impulse is wrong. And I think here we might be mistaken. You may or may not have noticed that over the last like month or two, there's been a whole lot of weddings going on here in our ministry. A lot of people getting married and I've been officiating all of them. So I bought a really cool polo suit to wear to all the weddings, which I am very proud of. And it's also given me this opportunity to look at the the marriage ceremony that I use. Uh, I'll just be honest, I didn't come up with it myself. The, the first wedding that I was asked to perform was a friend of mine from high school. And he, he hit me up and he was like, hey, you're a pastor, right? I was like, I mean, I guess. <laughs> and he said, can you perform my wedding? And I was like, I don't know. And so I went to Mark and I was like, yeah, this was probably two or three years ago. And I said, am I allowed to perform weddings? And he goes, yeah, absolutely. And I said, do I just make something up? Like, what do I say? What do I do? Uh, and Mark was super gracious and, and he gave me, he said, here's the ceremony that I use. Obviously that this is up for some revision and you can, you can change it around a little bit and, and add your own sort of uh, personal 
phrasing to it, if you'd like. And so the first wedding, I was so terrified. This was, like I said, two or three years ago. I was like, I am sticking exactly to what Mark said. I don't want to get this wrong. And so it was, it was more or less verbatim what he sent me. And then as uh, more weddings happened, I, I started kind of refining it and changing it. And in this last sort of round of weddings, uh, one of the things that I've done is I've gone back and I've looked at the section called The Charge, which is basically this short sermon that is directed towards the bride and groom, just to give them a couple uh, sort of things to consider as they step into this new season of their life. And as I was reading it and just thinking about all the weddings going on, I was saying to myself, like, there's nothing in here that these people don't know. Because I know all these people. I know them well enough to know that nothing in this charge is going to be new for them. But I didn't actually change the charge. I actually just added something at the beginning before I say it. Uh, in which I say to the bride and groom, listen, I, I know you both, I know you well, and I know that nothing I'm about to say to you is new, but my job as your pastor is not always to teach you new things, but it's to remind you of ancient truths that you might be prone to forget. And so it is this evening. Psalm 23 is one that you've heard a million times, but my job is not to tell you something new about it. My job is to remind you of the ancient truths in this portion of Holy Scripture, which you may be prone to forget. And so let me invite you now in Psalm 23, would you hear the word of the Lord? It says this, a Psalm of David, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David says in verse one, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. And that first line, the Lord is my shepherd, is in many ways the cornerstone, the foundation upon which everything else that's said in this psalm is built. David himself spent his early life as a shepherd, and he now draws on his experiences growing up before he was made king of Israel to describe what it looks like to walk under the guidance uh, and in fellowship with the Lord. But let me just say this. Everything else in the psalm flows from that single line. And if that line is not true, then everything else in this psalm will, in your own life, feel like a lie and ring hollow. I'm, I'm in grad school right now. I was talking to some people before service and, and you're all taking midterms, which I'm so sorry for you about. I don't have midterms for another two or three weeks. Uh, it'll be really terrible, I'm sure. Uh, but the thing that with grad school, especially in theology, is that it's mostly writing papers. And so like my midterm is essentially me just writing a bunch of small papers. And then my final is me writing a really, really big paper that I honestly have no idea how I'm going to pull off. But here's the thing that I consistently get in trouble with in my classes. Um, I don't know how to write thesis statements. Like I get, I get marked off in every single paper because the professor sort of draws a line through the opening paragraph and he's like, there's no thesis statement here. And to me, I, I think that's probably because I spend most of my life preaching and I don't need to have a thesis statement for a sermon. I can just talk for 30 minutes and you'll eventually know what I'm talking about. I'm like, listen, I'm just being pastoral, but that doesn't work in seminary. And so 
What I do know, even as somebody who's being bad at, who is bad at crafting thesis statements, is that the structure, the form, the, the whole direction of the, that statement, that one sentence in the opening paragraph, it determines the course of your paper. And this is the case for that one line, the Lord is my shepherd. Understand this, uh, in life, as human beings, you do not get a choice as to whether or not you will be shepherded. Functionally, we as embodied creatures, we naturally follow something or someone. The question is not whether or not you have a shepherd. The question is, does the shepherd that you've set over your life have the ability to make good on the promises of Psalm 23? There was a a really well-known literary critic in the last 50 years. He was invited to speak at a commencement ceremony for a university and uh, his speech has become really famous because in it he says, listen, the reality is that we all worship something. Uh, Some of us worship love, some of us worship power, some of us worship wisdom, some of us worship money. But the reality is the reason why most people throughout the world have chosen to follow a God, whether it be Yahweh or Allah or, or any of the other deities is because most every material thing that you choose to worship will probably kill you. And to my knowledge, this guy actually never became a Christian, wasn't a Christian when he said it, uh, never converted over the course of his life, but he laid hold of something true. We will be shepherded by something or someone. And the question is, can your shepherd actually make good on any of these promises? Whether that's your relationships, uh, whether that's your uh, significant other, whether that's your friendships, whether that's your uh, academic record, whether that's your job, I promise you that all these things will fall short of what Psalm 23 says. It's only if the Lord is your shepherd that what David goes on to say will be true. And he goes on to say this, that with the Lord as his shepherd, I shall not want. And it's, it's important to say something here because it, it would be really easy to take this passage and think that what David's saying is, with the Lord as my shepherd, I get all of the things that I want. Uh, whether that's uh, material wealth, uh, whether that's uh, the relationship that I'm hoping for, whether that's the job opportunity that I'm reaching after. It's easy for us to hear in this some sort of like health and wealth, prosperity gospel type statement. But what most commentators would say here is that, that a good translation in especially sort of the modern age where it's prone to being misunderstood is what David is actually getting at is the Lord is my shepherd, I have all that I need. And that's significant because I think that's a statement that becomes more and more true as your Christian life goes on. I mentioned a couple weeks ago, there's a guy here in our church who was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, That was several months ago and he mentioned it to me on a Sunday morning. And since his diagnosis, we've made a habit of getting breakfast once a week at this diner up the road from my house. And every week I sit down with him and I normally ask him the same uh, opening question. So how are things going? How's, how's chemotherapy been? How's your treatment? How's the doctor's visits? And almost without fail, his response to me every week is, I am so amazed by the grace of our Lord. And that's when he's gotten good news. That's when he's gotten bad news. Uh, that's when nothing at all has happened and he's just been through another round of treatment. It's always, I am so amazed at the grace of our Lord. And that's not to say that he's not going through difficulty. Don't, don't hear me as saying that there aren't struggles and challenges, but the thing that he always says is, you know, even five years ago, if this had happened to me, I have no idea how I would have responded. But the Lord has spent the last five years uh, showing me his goodness and his kindness so that now when all of this is happening, I'm not troubled by it. 
this friend of mine, he's probably 25 to 30 years further along in his walk with the Lord than I am. And in that time, he's come to discover something that I think we discover and, and something that David recognizes as he sort of mentions it here in this psalm. The longer that we walk with Christ, the more that I think we see how little we need apart from him. So that when David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I have all that I need. He recognizes that in having God as his shepherd, he has all that's necessary. Whether his life goes well, whether it goes poorly, and his life takes an awful lot of different turns over the course of what we're told in scripture. But with God as a shepherd, he has maybe not what he wants, but what he needs. This is what St. Augustine realized so long ago. If you're not familiar with the story of Augustine, uh, you should read about him. I named my cat after him. That's how significant he is. And he spent the first 30 years of his life chasing after all these things that he thought would satisfy this void in his soul, whether that was money, whether that was wisdom, whether that was status, whether that was love. He, he chased after everything until he came to the end of himself and he finally bent the knee to Christ. And probably 10 to 15 years after his conversion, as he's reflecting on his life before Christ and getting ready to write this autobiography of his that's become so famous called The Confessions, he has this opening line in which he says, Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Augustine understood what my friend from the church understood, what David understands that the one who has God has all that they need. But David goes on to describe what life is like under the good shepherd. He says, he makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And here David's sort of reaching back into his own life because David has spent 20, 30 years being a shepherd he knows all the ins and outs of what this requires. And so he, he holds out these two realities that are essential to the life and the health of the sheep. It's green pastures and still waters. Sheep need to eat and they need to drink. And he says that with God as his shepherd, God leads him through those sort of places, places that are sources of life, places that restore him, things that give him strength. In 1970, a guy named Philip Keller, not to be confused with Tim Keller, uh, wrote this short commentary on Psalm 23. And uh, what is important about this commentary is not that he's some great Bible scholar. Uh, there's nothing significant about his education in particular. He's not like a, a genius when it comes to ancient Hebrew or ancient uh, portions of scripture. Uh, but what was significant is that Phil Keller was a shepherd by vocation. And so he came up with this really creative title for his book called A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23 which is ingenious, and it's exactly how creative I am when I name anything. But in it, as he's commenting on this particular passage, especially still waters, he reflects on this, this time where he was with another group of shepherds and uh, they were leading the, the flocks of sheep to water because it had been a while since they passed by any streams. And they led the sheep to what looked like this cavern in the ground. Uh, and he kind of looked at it it's like, this is a little bit dangerous looking. And the shepherd starts picking up the sheep and carrying them into this terrifying cave in the ground and dropping them off one by one. And at the bottom of this cave, which had seemed so ominous, was this stream. But from the external perspective, it looked like the shepherd was leading those sheep to their death. 
It's like the shepherd is just taking them, just tossing them into the cave. But at the bottom of the cave was this source of life, this thing that was so necessary for them uh, to continue on. And, and I say this because so often we think of green pastures and still waters and we think of good things, the things that are obviously life-giving, obviously things to be celebrated. So maybe uh, for you, Thursday nights has been green pastures or still waters for you. I, I sure hope that it has, that God's met with you here and strengthened you here. Maybe, maybe you find green pastures and still waters in your small group. And I certainly hope that that's been the case, that God's given you strength there. Uh, maybe you've got a really close friend who loves the Lord and just having conversations with them has been a good thing for you to just strengthen your faith. But it's not always those places in which God chooses to communicate life and grace to us. I mentioned uh, several weeks ago uh, that my, my grandma passed away uh, in September, I believe it was. And several weeks after that, we had the funeral and uh, my uncle Chris spoke. And my uncle Chris is just this incredible man of God uh, who's pretty quiet, fairly reserved. But when he gets the opportunity to speak, you're like, oh my gosh, you missed your calling as a pastor because he's just so good at communicating. And I was sitting in this ceremony, which in many ways is like the cave that Philip Keller describes. Uh, it, this is objectively a sad thing. Uh, we've lost a family member. Uh, we're marking the death of a loved one. But my uncle Chris proclaimed the gospel in such a profound way in that moment. Uh, he, he talked about the grace of Christ and how it had affected my grandparents and affected the way that they uh, raised their children, uh, the way that they interacted with the world around them. He, he, he did such a good job of that. And I just started looking at the, the front few pews uh, in the church and seeing uh, my aunt and uncle, my aunts and uncles, my mom and my dad, uh, my cousins, and all of them are Christians. Like that, that is such a rare thing to have an entire family profess to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and walk in it. And so I, I'm sitting in the middle of, of what seems like a really tragic situation, what is in fact a really tragic situation, but it was in this moment that I just experienced the grace of God in a really unique way. At the bottom of this cave, I found still waters. And I, I say all that because so often we wanna talk about green pastures and still waters as being the obviously good things but I think that the Lord is big enough to work even in the midst of really tragic things, to work in the midst of suffering and the midst of difficulty, to still provide streams of living water to give you strength to walk through that. And David goes on and he says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. David's not under any illusion that life led by the good shepherd is always going to appear good. Uh, and this is one of the things that I love about the Bible. It's just way more honest than most Christians are. Uh, and you see this here. David recognizes full well that even with the Lord as his shepherd, things will not always be easy. Uh, he doesn't propose like this valley is some sort of a hypothetical thing where he says, maybe someday if I happen to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, hypothetically, I'll fear no evil because in theory, you'll be with me. Like he, he recognizes very clearly that this is a part of life. This valley of the shadow of death is a reality that will be experienced even when walking under the guidance and the care of the Lord. I, want, I just want to be honest with you. Um, the promise of scripture is not that your life will be easy. 
The promise of the gospel is not that your life will be free from pain or difficulty. And some of you might be here right now. You hear valley of the shadow of death and you go, yeah, that more or less sounds like life at the present moment. And, and these seasons, can, they can grow so difficult that, that the darkness that sets in around us, we can almost feel like, like we've lost sight of the shepherd whom we follow. Uh, darkness can obscure his form. But one of the, the great things is, is that when you come to the gospels, Jesus picks up this motif of being the good shepherd. We read it in worship. Katie read it for us in the gospel according to John and in the revelation of St. John. And one of the things that Jesus says, is he says, I know my sheep and my sheep know my voice. So that even when this valley grows so dark that you cannot see the form of the shepherd, you still hear his voice. David's confidence here when he talks about the Lord as his shepherd, it's not that God would give him a life of ease, but even in the midst of difficulty, the shepherd does not leave his side. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil because you're with me, he says. Ultimately, David concludes this psalm by saying, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's one of the great things about the Psalms is that it's profoundly, each of them is in its own way, profoundly attuned to the reality of human life in a fallen world. Like you almost can't get through a Psalm without it hitting a low point about something tragic, but you also we're going to have some difficulty finding a psalm that doesn't take a turn at the end for the better. Uh, and this is what happens. After passing through the valley of the shadow of death, David is still convinced that life under the Lord as his shepherd is a life that will be marked by goodness and mercy. How much more for you and I who have seen the gospel of Jesus, who have seen the faithfulness of God at the cross and the empty tomb, who have heard the words of Jesus in the gospel of John, as was read for us, where he says, I am the good shepherd. David sees through a glass dimly, but we see the kindness of the Lord as our shepherd in the face of Jesus Christ. In the middle of all this, David makes this statement in verse five, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Uh, every week as a ministry, we take the Lord's Supper together, this ancient sign and seal of God's faithfulness. And in so many ways, this table presented in the presence of enemies is a picture of what the Lord's Supper is, that in the middle of the present age in which we live, where we don't yet see Christ's authority over all things, God spreads a table for us. He invites us in bread and wine to see his goodness and his kindness so that we can say with David, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And so I want to invite you now, if you're a Christian, uh, to come and take communion. Uh, as the people who are holding the elements come forward, let me pray for us, and then we'll move into that time together. <sighs> Righteous Father, good shepherd, you are kind to us. And Lord, we realize that life is not always easy, but you remain good and you remain faithful. God, I pray for those of us who are in the midst of difficulty, uh, that you would remind them of your faithfulness. God, I pray for those of us who are in the middle of good times, green pastures and still waters, God, that these would be uh, places where they grow in their confidence in you, or that they grow in their love 
of you as our good shepherd. And Lord, we pray uh, that as we come to the table now that you spread in the presence of this present evil age, uh, that we would also have the confidence of David to say that goodness and mercy will follow us all the days of our life. We who have been marked by the goodness and the kindness of the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus, we ask all these things in Christ's name.